the Drip, the podcast for four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to broader conversations about race, culture, and politics. All the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops, tea shops, and each other's homes. We're at Tad's place right now, well, except for Crystal, who's beaming in from D.C. Yay! Yay. Yay. Hi, Crystal! So, as always, thanks, Todd, Lucia, and Bash for hosting us. Where's Bash? Bash is somewhere. Yeah, he's Sleep. sitting in his chair, I he's think. He's sitting in his chair, very yeah. quietly. I'm Anita, the host for the show, and I teach in the Educational Studies Department at Carleton College. I'm Adriana, and I teach in the English and American Studies Department and Program at Carleton College. English is the department, American Studies is the program. We've got to be precise. And I'm Crystal Moten. I don't teach, but... <laughs> <laughs> What do you do, the, Crystal? Uh, National Museum of American History in D.C. Woo. Yes, I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach African American Literature and Culture, Folklore and Cultural Studies at the University of St. Thomas. Hey, you got that pretty like concisely yeah, this time. Yeah, it's been like three months <laughs> of errors. <laughs> All right, so in this episode, we're discussing Oscar Casares' new novel, Where We Come From. Casares comes from a town called Brownsville, located at the southern end of the Rio Grande River, just across the bridge from Matamoros, Mexico, and that town is actually the setting for the novel. His first novel, Amigo Land, was selected for the 2009 Austin Mayor's Book Club, which was a citywide reading initiative by the Austin Public Library. He has lots of fellowships, including from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Texas Institute of Letters, and the Copernicus Society of America. He's currently an associate professor of creative writing courses at the University of Texas at Austin. And as he puts it, he writes novels, stories, and essays about the border. And before we dig in, as always, spoiler alert. Just a reminder that when we discuss our books, we discuss our books and we talk about everything. And as you may know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective. So consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alert. In other words, we're... All about spoilers and not about summaries. No summaries. So there's a lot of different places where we could dig into this book, but I think one of the things we were talking about before we started the podcast was this notion that in some ways, right, one of the reasons why we chose the book is that it seems super timely and relevant given everything that's happening at our southern bar border at the moment and with sort of immigration policy. But in a lot of other ways, we like these stories are kind of something that's happened across centuries, across thousands of years in terms of people moving and in terms of people moving for lots of different reasons, but also I think, Adriana, you were saying kind of the impact that it then has on relationships. So I don't know if we wanted to kind of start there and dig in. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, Anita, you're starting this huge, um, which is <laughs> excellent. Um, and one of the interesting things about the novel is that it really starts small, though, right, that the very first prologue is called um, The, the Rules. Rules. Right. Prologo Los Rules, and it's basically where we just get thrown into it, um, in some ways funneled through Orly, um, one of our central protagonist's eyes. He is telling us about all the rules that he has in Nina's house, which we find out little by little is in Brownsville. And there's rules about not kicking the ball against the house, about keeping away from the pink house, about having respect. Um, all of these ways in which he must conform to life with Nina, which is very different than the life he had with his father and his mother in Houston. Um, and what's fascinating about you know, your introduction, Anita, and then the way we move into the novel, is that part of what I think the novel is asking us to think about is how there are always these large structures, legal structures, 
um, imposed kind of expectations that don't we don't always understand the reasons for them, and yet that we're expected to conform to those expectations, to those laws, to those impositions. Um, and so Orly's experience of uh, figuring out how to live at Nina's is also, um, it's juxtaposed and really kind of compared explicitly to what does it mean to be a migrant trying to cross the border and having to learn a whole new set of rules for what it means to um, come to the U.S., uh, survive in the U.S. Um, and it comes with a similar set of kind of goodbyes, figuring out how not to live with his father and his brother for Orly. Um, and for all the migrants that we see traces of in the novel, we get visions and, like, I really think they're traces, right? They're kind of these ghostly presences of the people they leave behind and, or of the people they leave behind. You know, one of the first stories we get is of Odilia, who we discover dies as she's trying to make her way um, in the U.S. That's, that's the very first migrant story we get embedded in the novel. I was going to say, I was just a, a really small point, thinking it's interesting that we begin with Orly and his, and his narration of the rules, mm -hmm. um, and what to me feels like at this very beginning as this kind of individual kind of um, relationship to rules and to procedure, um, but what we see you know, as we continue is that nothing is ever individual, even if you're mm. traveling or moving or migrating alone. Um, and so Orly's having to kind of position and reposition himself to these rules, but with various groups and peoples, both in the foreground and the background. Um, and that's not something I thought of immediately when I started reading the, the, the prologue, mm -hmm. but that I'm thinking mm -hmm. of now. Well, I think that makes me think that the ways that the, the book illustrates the ways that rules the different reasons that rules exist you know mm -hmm. like the orley's world like every kid is governed by rules and you have you're supposed to follow them or there are consequences etc 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 um but those rules aren't always like people always parent your parents always tell you the rules are for your safety but they're not always for your safety <laughs> like sometimes they're so i don't have to tell you the real thing or sometimes they're so we don't have to confront this reality that is too complicated for me to explain it to you i mean there are lots of different reasons why there are rules and and if you think about the ways that the rules are um sometimes the reason for the rules are sometimes hidden from children it also makes you think about the ways that the rules that we are supposed to follow as adults are arbitrary are often arbitrary and are meant to protect you know something that's valuable they're not they're not there to protect us in, in very much like the rule that says someone can't cross this line on a map is an arbitrary rule right and i think you know so you're getting a sense of how how rules in general aren't always what they seem to be or what people profess them to be right but but because of some of those arbitrary rules, some of the rules are there to keep people safe, right? Like in this case, it wasn't, it was to keep Daniel safe, mm -hmm. and like, or at least in the sense that Nina thought about it. But I think what I also, like, keeping to the rules, what I appreciate about this novel is that Orly's just a kid, right? So I was thinking about when he comes back and when he, first, when he finds out about Daniel and he's like really pissed off, and he comes back to this idea of rules, and this is 139, and he's like, 
He's the only one with rules. Not her, not the boy. <laughs> They're the ones who need the rules. All he did was get up in the middle of the night that wasn't really the middle of the night and only to get himself a glass of water that didn't have anything floating around in it. <laughs> For that, he ended up with more rules. No going in the backyard, no staring out the window, no telling what he saw, no more getting up at night when he should be the one making rules for them. And I sort of really loved that. Just this idea of like this kid, like trying to figure out what's happening, right? And he's like super resentful. He's like, you know, he doesn't know like why Daniel's there and he doesn't really quite understand. And he's just like, I just got more rules because all I did was like get up and so I don't have like creepy things in my water. And I just thought that it was like a really lovely way in which I think he sort of humanizes all of these characters in these like really great ways. I, I think you chose a perfect quote because it's beautiful because Orly's experience mirrors, even though he doesn't know it, the other characters, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Because we've seen how Nina is hemmed in by her mother's expectations and abuse, honestly. Her brother Beto's um, neglect and kind of, but still insistent oversight um, and her, the way that she got herself into smuggling, helping to smuggle humans across the border, which happened in this really slip slidey way. But she clearly also at some point finds herself really committed to Daniel mm -hmm. and to wanting to see him mm -hmm. thrive or, or at least survive. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, we find out, you know, later that she has not been calling the numbers that he's right. been giving her because she has grown to like having him around, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then Daniel, oh my gosh, the rules that Daniel has to deal with, right? Yeah. You know, don't come out unless it's dark, you know, don't turn on the TV, don't use the air conditioner, right? And all these, make yourself as small as possible. So I think like actually in, in I say that out loud, I think all the characters in the novel that we're centered through really are making themselves as small as possible mm and not realizing until kind of the end of that narration of the novel that there's there's those common kind of experiences mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they can see each other and, and so when they finally see each other um, find deep peace right mm -hmm. ish right I mean I don't know right like I think I want to also like maybe think through this idea of similarities right because I think that it does it does get complicated right and I think actually Especially Orly, which, like, for a kid, I think he does a really nice job of, like, actually thinking through how his life is very different from Daniel's, mm -hmm. right? And I think mm -hmm. I appreciated the novel because I don't think that it necessarily... Yes, right? Like, we all have this, like, human experiences of particular things, but I don't think it necessarily sort of says then our experiences are equal in this, right, like, right. in ways of, like, power and structure, oh, right? No, and so, and I think... No. Well, no, just to say that I think, like, I think that's kind of a nice... And I don't know, like, I actually found the ending to be pretty ambiguous, so... Yes. Like, I'm yes. not sure if... Peace is the word that I would necessarily use. Um, I'm, I'm going to, to read a quote, though. Yeah. Them. Um, so at Daniel at the end, um, does leave, we don't know. I think one of the ambiguities is we don't know if he gets to his dad. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. right. Um, yeah. But when he leaves, um, Orly reaches out to give Daniel a fist bump. This is on page 246. Like he did the last time he saw Carson or when Alex left for camp. And one of the things that I think this novel does well is actually there's there's a kind of unpacking of a kind of masculinity mm. throughout the novel that um, mm. Daniel's um, presence in Orly's life and maybe Orly's presence in Daniel's helps Orly work through. We don't mm. really see it from Daniel's side, mm -hmm. which I think right. does matter. Yeah. Um, but Daniel shakes his head and leans in to <laughs> hug him. It isn't a pretend hug either. The kind most of his friends gave him at his mom's funeral because they felt sorry for him, 
but also didn't want to get too close. At first, Orly isn't sure what to do with his arms and hands. And he, you know, like there's this whole processing for Orly. Mm -hmm. He finally says, um, when Nina or some other grown-up hugs him, he usually only leans in and holds still, like he's getting measured or they're taking his temperature. But here, Daniel isn't moving away and is waiting for him to hug back, like this means something he understands. And Orly will understand too if he stops thinking about what was, what might have been, what could be, and instead sees what is. And I think that's what I mean when I, I mm. say the book gets to a kind of peace. Mm. That um, it's not about seeing sameness, it's just about actually seeing what is. Do you think that the, yeah, I like that. I mean, and I also was thinking, do you think that there's any part of it that the peace comes from? Because um, I think the book is so much about our inability to be honest with ourselves and each other mm -hmm. and the complications that arise from that when we think that we're doing things that protect ourselves and other people and that if we if we do sort of open ourselves up to the truth of what's happening around us mm -hmm. um, and allow ourselves to be close with other people I mean I think you know like we got to remember that Orly has been hurt by the, the only relationships that he basically has in his life, right, with his family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to process or figure out why his mother, who he clearly um, is closer to than his father in some sort of, you know, some real way, um, that she's done something that's hurt him, and then she died, and it, so it can't be resolved. Can't he be will resolved, never get right? closure yeah. on there. Yeah, he can't right. get closure, and he's really struggling with that. So the, what, what do you, what's the response to that is to keep a distance from other people, right? Like to stay back from other people. But here is this kid who's clearly, like they're clearly like mirrors of each other in some way, right? They're both in these houses on the same property, one blue, one pink, and um, they sort of creep out the back door and the front door at each other and, and, and uh, start to initiate this relationship that is brief. But there's, the thing about it is it's, I wouldn't even say it's intense, it's brief, but it's like, it's honest in a way that some of his other relationships aren't, even with, with his Nina, not until the very end, right. you know, when she really starts to sort of tell him. I mean, I love the thing that she says at the end to him when she says, I don't know what page this is on, but it just stuck in my head where she says, you know, um, just because you're an adult doesn't mean you make you fewer make mistakes. mistakes. Right. It means yeah. your mistakes can hurt more people. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's what she's talking about is that she's kept all the stuff that's happened in her life from both herself and from other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, she has this whole history that mm -hmm. she that no one knows but her. Not even really Jorge, right? Like mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. she hasn't really ever had a conversation with Jorge about what's happened, right? Although in that case, it's not because she didn't try. No, right? no, no. no. <laughs> so like I think it's like no, but I think yeah. it, she's she's felt like she couldn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like she's felt like you know. So she's in. She's a victim of this kind of like social expectations yeah. that you can't violate these rules, right? The yeah. rules again, right? Yeah. And at the at the end, you know, like what Orly shows us is you can break the rules. What we're always afraid of is like what will happen if you do. Mm -hmm. And I think like there's a naivete you know, when he goes across to Matamoros and right. he, he could have been killed, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't killed. Right. So it's possible to break the rules. <laughs> Um, you know, they're not absolute. Well, so and does I, Nina, right? It's right. like much big, big, like a really big way. And I feel like I was thinking about her initial 
sort of yes to Romalda, mm -hmm. to like say yes to that, to say yes because it's like somebody she knows and it's somebody that, you know, whatever relationship she has, she has a relationship. And I was just thinking about like how hard it is to break those rules, right? Like even if we know that it's arbitrary, even if we know that it's unjust, like I so admired that moment where she like made that decision. And I know like the rest of it kind of gets complicated because she gets like, you know, into a smuggling ring and like all of that. But I feel like that initial impulse to say, I know this is difficult and I know this is going to like change my life, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I just think about how few times in my life I do that, right? Like for the most part, I live my life, even with everything going on right now in privilege and comfort. And there's like, for the most part, 90% of the time, I make decisions based on my own comfort and my own privilege and I don't break the rules, mm -hmm. right? Even though I know that the rules are unfair. So I'm just thinking about that moment where she's just like, Okay. Yeah. And, and to right. complicate that, right, it's not just that she has comfort and privilege that that she has to mm -hmm. kind of uh, disavow to make that decision. She actually has discomfort in her life mm -hmm. that that makes it challenging to m break that rule too. Yeah. Right. Like the breaking the rule is not just about maybe getting rid of her privilege. It's about maybe. Um, I don't know how to actually explain this, but like her life is is so hemmed in. Mm. Um, and I think what you know what's really lovely about that section that you're pointing to, Anita, is that she gets such interiority in this novel, right? Mm. So it's not just oh yeah, sure, I'll do this, right? Because Rumalda, like yeah, she's she works for me, but she's you know, but we're friends it's more complicated. Mm -hmm. It's like she actually weighs the relationship and she's trying to figure out the cost and like she struggles with it for several pages right. until it, you know, like she doesn't even really decide. She just doesn't say turn no. She her just away. doesn't say no to exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Because of yeah. what I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. What she, uh, Adriana says she doesn't decide, but she just doesn't say no, which is a kind of a decision. Mm -hmm. um, but what I was also thinking as um, we were talking about um, Nina is that, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 on one hand is, you know, not only this idea about rules, but in terms of how the rules define people's relationships to each other. And so thinking about her relationship with Romalda, I mean, it's like, if I say yes, then it will mean X, Y, Z, but do I want it to mean X, Y, Z? Are we friends? Are we not friends? Mm -hmm. Just because we've had tea at my coffee table, does mm -hmm. that make us friends? Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure. But then when she gets to the end, well, I don't, I'm not really quite sure where it is in the book, but in the end, she does end yeah. up referring to Ramada as a friend, mm -hmm. but then mm -hmm. she's like, well, but are we friends? Because she realizes there's this power dynamic right. between right. her and uh, Ramalda, um, and they're caught up in that, even if that's not what they would both want, right? They just can't, I mean, they can't be simply friends, right? right. Um, and so in making her decision, she's constantly, we see her grappling with, with the meaning of um, breaking the rule will be on on that relationship on relationships exactly right. <laughs> mm -hmm. i'm super like my brain is just super spinning from this book and this conversation and i just i love it so much and like what you said crystal made me think about <clears throat> the way that this book um grapples with or deals with this notion of our and it's kind of related to what you were talking about before anita our similarities or our um common uh our common experiences 
Um, like, so you've got all these characters in the novel who are Mexican-American, who are one or two or three generations removed from um, migrant uh, history themselves, right? And, um, you know, particularly, like, so Orly's father, for example, Eduardo, who is a successful, like, advertising something, he does something in advertising yeah. and making commercials or something like that. And they have a, um, a maid, and they have these people who work for them, and they are also Mexican-American, or they are Latinx, they are, they are from, you know, they've also come across the border, essentially, I guess you might say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you've got, like, the relationship that you were talking to between Nina and Romalda, and I think, you know, like, maybe, I don't know if it's the more money you get or the, your ability to think of someone else as completely other, to completely other them or think of our relationship as, um, as uh, not connected at all. And I can't remember, there, but there's a, I think it might be Beto. I think it's Beto because he's sort of talking about, you know, they used, I forget what the word Mojado. is. Yeah, like, which basically means wetbacks, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, referring to other people that. That have, Nina's mom, too. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, like, I guess there's just a way in which you can kind of, like, disconnect yourself from people who have the, basically the same sort of history and experience as you and say, I'm not one of them, I'm not like that. And then you don't have to have a relationship with them. And then the rules can be absolute. And you could say, we just follow the rules. We are a land of, of, of law or whatever, you know, all this stuff. Or like we, we did follow the rules, right, right? We, in some yeah, cases. Exactly. Not always, because I mean, there was that, like, that interesting story about the Daniel the cop, right, whose mom actually was, mm-hmm. uh, did come over without authorization, right. and I think. So that, that I found really interesting, right? So this is the cop that chases... Daniel. Uh, Daniel, right? Daniel right. the kid. Right. And I found that, like, super interesting, right? So this idea of, like, you kind of forget, right? Kind of what your history is for really good reason sometimes. Um, it's like to protect yeah. yourself, exactly. right? Exactly. So that you don't have to have this this confusing sort of um, conversation with yourself that Crystal's talking about. Are we friends? Do What is our actual relationship? Instead, right. you just say, well, they're not like me. You just ignore them. You just I, I other belong. Them. You don't belong. You be- yeah. Yeah. It's actually, um, there's an anthropologist, Pablo Vila, who's done work on the U.S.-Mexico border. And I'm sure this is true for any sort of border set of relations, right? Not just the U.S.-Mexico border. But one thing that he found is that um, Mexicans, uh, you know, uh, had, uh, you know, who were further away, right, further south, um, felt perfectly friendly towards uh, Mexican Americans, Chicanos, and so did Americans who lived pretty, you know, like. But but on the border, like right there, Mexican Americans and Mexicans had the worst relationships. They were the most kind of resentful and kind of like anxious about who each other were. And I think it does have a lot to do with these histories, mm-hmm. um, with um, with the willful forgetting of where we come from and about relationality, right? Yeah. Because it helps secure in a nationalist um, era, especially. Um, it helps you secure, like psychologically, have a sense of security about where you belong. And I don't know when he's writing about this. Like, what's the time? It was it was in about? the '80s that he okay, um, did the study. So. Okay, because what actually the same like, kind of idea. What what made me think about is like main eyes and possible subjects. And she actually yeah. talks about the same dynamics in the 1930s, right? Yeah. When like the Bracero program happened, and there was like a pretty complicated relationship between Mexican Americans and me- migrant Mexican workers. And I think just this idea that yeah, right? Like, I mean, definitely kind of. I think definitely shows that white supremacy is an ideology that people of any color can take on. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of that. Mm-hmm. But I also thought that, right, in some ways, kind of relate to what you're saying, like closer to the border, 
there's more of a chance that you'll be mistaken for quote unquote that person, right? right? So I think there's also this like insecurity by your own status and insecurity by your own sort of safety that makes you in some way, right? I mean, it can lead to lots of different things, right? For Nina, it led to her doing what she did, but also it can lead to sort of being like Tio Beto, who's like, I don't want to do anything with them, and they're mm-hmm. sort of the bad people. It is right? extremely important, even though we might not uh, see it as a metaphor, but it is, right, that he is a, a, a pest control person, mm-hmm. yeah. right, mm-hmm. that he takes care of yeah. roaches. Yeah. One of the words that's been used to describe Mexicanos in the U.S. is cucaracha, or roach, mm-hmm. right? So he, he is actually kind of like a... An infestation. Um, this is Trump's favorite it, word lately, right? Abs- yeah. it's right, and he is basically a parallel to the kind of, the, we see the Border Patrol um, throughout the novel in the green vans, and Beto is like another van that is also a problem yeah. for this yeah. kind of like this, yeah, this metaphor of infestation. Mm-hmm. Right? And that wasn't there some new uh, statistic that like a good majority of the Border Patrol are Latinx and Mexican American, right? So I'm kind of also thinking about who, the kind of position that folks hold, right, and in, in that sort of reinforcement of the border. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Um, one other thing I was thinking about too, if I can dump it on you guys, is uh, is this um, the 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 notion of being constantly under surveillance and being policed, right? Like, yeah. I mean, this there's these scenes. I think there are two of them. Well, there are three of them. One is when um, uh, Eduardo and and um, or they are riding in the car together on the mm-hmm. way to Brownsville, and they get to Brownsville. He's mm-hmm. you know he's taking him to stay with Nina. And a, a, a van, a Custom and Border Patrol van, pulls up next to them, and um, Eduardo like waves, waves or, at him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Orly asks him, well, why did you wave? Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't know, he said, like, I think I knew him or something like that, right? Right, yeah. And then when, um, later, when um, Orly is at the, is it Raspa? What's the? The, the, the Raspas. The Raspas. <laughs> they're at the frozen ice stand. He you and know? Daniel have like snuck out. Right. Well, yeah. there's one. That he, he's there before, before and with his father, I think, and mm. and the, the they pull up again, and everyone who's there stops and looks at them, yeah. right, to mm. see who is who are they after, mm. and then they drive off, and then there's a third time right. when okay. he, when Daniel and and he are there. And then Orly waves at him because right. he's seen his father do it, and right. that's how they, you know, that's part of their feeling yeah. of getting away. But, like the the fact that any time this van or the suburban yeah. pulls up, that everyone, even people who, you know, I'm making air quotes, people who are here with, with are supposed to be here, um, they're afraid too, you know. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I mean, I feel a real sort of affinity. I mean, obviously, it's not the same thing, but I feel a real sort of affinity with that feeling because, Mm -hmm. you know, I was actually just walking in my neighborhood last night and the cops, uh, you know, the St. Paul police car pulls by. Mm. They usually, like, slow down a little bit when I'm walking (laughs) at night, you know, with my dog. And I just, you know, I had my earphones in and I took one earphone out, you know, because I thought, okay, he's going to say something to Mm -hmm. me. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, but there's a sort of sense of like, okay, I'm under surveillance now. I got to be careful. Even though I didn't do anything wrong. Right, I know right, I didn't do anything wrong. Bash. Right? Yeah. And this, everybody at that Raspa stand, you know, probably 90%. No, well, no one did anything wrong. Right. Someone just broke some, again, air quote, rule about crossing a line on a map. Maybe or maybe not, right? So I, I did just this sense of, of being surveilled all the time. And, of course, as you were mentioning, like, Tio Beto is doing that right. too. Um, Nina's mother 
is surveilling mm. her. And then if you go all the way back to like thinking about Nina, her, her body is being policed and surveilled, right? right. Her mm. behavior, her brothers are like watching her, like basically right. stalking her when she and Jorge first start mm-hmm. having a relationship, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Like there's this whole thing of the ways that people are being watched, policed, and surveilled. Mm. That's super interesting to me. And I think just briefly connected to that is I've been thinking about La Branca, the the whole the kind dog, of book, yeah. and so yeah. Yeah. kind of connecting La Branca as being chained mm. and you know the immobility of La Branca to the people. Um, kind of always being surveilled. And so La Branca is always in the yard, chained up, and there's a limit to um, where um, the dog can go in the yard. Um, there, The ways in which people can interact with the, mm-hmm. with the dog. And so I think there's kind of also this, um, this theme that's kind of connecting surveillance to containment as well um and not to compare people humans and dogs no i don't do that but kind of just thinking about um what it means to always be chained and locked down Mm. and limited in one's um mobility i I think that's actually really useful crystal because one of the things that's interesting about la bronca is i mean she's chained down and has this limited mobility um but that serves nina to make sure that the, the pink house gets less surveilled, right? right? Mm-hmm. So it's this really fascinating, mm-hmm. like the, there's a suffering of one being, right, in order to um, protect another. To protect another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and later, Daniel calls the pink house la jaula rosada, yeah. right? Like so, mm-hmm. the, which is like the caged bird, mm-hmm. right? So he's act, there's this illusion, illusion, excuse me, to um, the place and stasis mm. as another kind of surveillance and entrapment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, right, because howlas are, right, You don't, cages have wire, right? You can see through them. Mm-hmm. And so I think even though he was invisible, he felt very seen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Unable to not be seen in a particular way. Does La Branca translate to anything? La Branca means like, um, like the one with anger, like the one who's like going to bring it, basically. Mm. Okay. Yeah. La Branca was that. Yeah, broncar is to like fight. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pink cage part also made me just think about, right, sort of all these ways in which, in some ways, um, what it keeps you from being able to experience. And I thought of that moment when uh, Nina finally touches Daniel mm-hmm. and just like how big that was and I was just thinking about what's happening at the border right now and right kind of all these things about right sort of human touch and human like he's a kid right and the fact that and I thought of that moment when um they finally have like that you know little sleepover and he asks her mm-hmm. to bless him as she just did orally mm-hmm. and like then she kisses him the way that she did orally and I was like that was yeah it was just this moment where like just thinking about the fact that it's like he's 13 mm-hmm. right and he's like spent I don't remember at that point how how long ago it was that he had seen his um, family, but like a long time, long time, right? And so he'd like gone through all these like traumatic experiences. He's alone for the most part, and he hasn't had any human touch as a thirteen-year-old. And I just yeah. Yeah. No, there are several places in this book where I sobbed. Right. Yeah. So if you read it thinking this won't touch me, okay. Look, I am a person who cries with Hallmark, so <laughs> I'm probably not the best judge. I almost cried, so that was, um, or I did cry, but I didn't because I was reading on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> I cry more easily on the plane, which is typical. Um, so, but the first time I cried was definitely with Odilia's story on page 87 and 88, 
which is the one that tells the story of the woman who is with the group, and she keeps up with the group for most of the night, but then falls oh. behind. And, um, and we get this tale of her death, which is deeply honest, you know, I mean, in, by which I mean it's direct and it's um, not melodramatic, and yet also deeply um, affecting. Um, it's just so, so painful uh, to watch, in some ways, where the limits of surveillance are, right? She calls 911 and they're too far yeah. away. No one can get there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like, she, she is unavailable to touch, right? She is abandoned um, without human relation, without... Yeah, I mean, she, her family will almost probably never know what happened to her, which is what happens to many of the people who die. Mm -hmm. um, in the middle of these crossings. Um, and then the second time I cried, I think, was actually with that bendición on page 240. Yeah. Um, and it's about the fact that he's finally getting touched. You're so right that like this book, that hug that I talked about earlier, like it's not, these, mm -hmm. these touches don't equalize people, um, but they humanize, they recognize mm -hmm. that we belong to each other, that we owe each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, seeing each other together, humans uh, together. So um, on 240, uh, Nina's, you know, she's like, she can't believe he asked for the bendición. What did she care how he slept? She was giving him a place to hide, food to eat. Looking back, she can't say when this changed, when it became about more than just hiding him, when he became more than her mojadito out back. The fact that um, she uses the word mojadito is really important, mm -hmm. actually. So mojado means wet back. It is definitely a uh, ugly word with ugly uh, connotations. Mojadito puts the diminutive on it. Mm -hmm. And in Spanish, especially Mexican Spanish, when we do that, that's a term of endearment. Mm -hmm. So there's something really fascinating happening in that moment, right? Where she's so like... a slur that also is a term of affection. Yeah. Mm. Um, and she's using her, too. Her mojadito. Right. So she has now claimed him, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she's recognized his smallness, right? His need for care. Uh, at the same time that he's still not quite hers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead I wanted to go back to the story that you read, and part of because I think I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of. So the story has all these like italicized sort of stories that basically kind of move us from this like moment that's happening in kind of the main characters lives into sort of mm -hmm. these characters that are kind of in like the background or like people a lot of the times I think they're you like know, servants a lot exactly, of times or right? workers yeah or... yeah or in this case it was like really interesting so it's kind of on the road that they're driving so this is when Orly's driving with his dad to get dropped off and uh so it's like 80 uh, 86 87 so it says on earlier trips, when he and Alex were sitting in the back of the Suburban, this was the part of the trip when their usual refrain of, are we there yet, turned to, how much longer? Because you do that really too well. <laughs> the kids. <laughs> because what followed was an interminable hour of driving past nothing but barbed Francis fire, cactus, acacia, mesquite, grazing cattle, empty train tracks, a couple of radio towers, vacational pump check, and on this particular afternoon, an empty water jug lurching across the land like a tiny tumbleweed. And then we find out that it was sort of the empty jug, um, the water that um, Odilia was drinking, and she sort of ran out of water. And he does this, like, at several points. 
Um, and I, you know, and I, I don't, uh, I think the very first one was actually uh, Romalda's You're right. mm-hmm. husband, yep. Yep. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, on page 28. On page 28 mm-hmm. and then like his story. And I'm kind of curious about what you thought about it, both in terms of just the format of how he does that, but also the impact of having those stories. Yeah. I love it. I, I, I was, I had just written down that I wanted to talk about that, you know, from yeah. a formal standpoint that, um, you know, because again, like just to repeat what I was saying before, I think this book is so much about relationships, both ones that we have, ones that are sort of developed and ones that are forestalled. And mm. and um, to, you know, it's actually kind of a cinematic thing too, right? Like to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have, you know, that, that empty jug and then to focus in on it and then use that to go to this other scene about another character mm. where you're focusing on their experience. Um, but I think it's just I think it's super fascinating the way that he does this to tell the stories of people whose stories are not don't seem to be central to the main narrative mm. of the novel. We find mm. out they actually are um, yeah. because they I think what I, what I mean by that <laughs> Adriana just made it. A, a, a weird face that she doesn't buy what I'm saying but I think like they what they do is they show us the f- sort of fuller scope of the world in which these things take place in the the mm-hmm. world that these characters are living in and again like I was struck by um, you know when you referenced that particular story um, I was struck by I didn't think about this until just now but comparing this book to a book like Devil's Highway which um, I read that book. Which is by Luis Alberto Urrea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that book is about um, migrants and crossing the border. And when I remember reading that, I don't know, a few years ago mm-hmm. when I was on Christmas break at um, my partner's parents' house and I'd just usually sit in a book and drink beer and read all day. And, <laughs> um, and I read that book and I got sick. Like I mm-hmm. physically got ill as I was reading it because it's all about, I mean, a big part of it is to make you understand what happens to the body when you try mm. to cross the desert without mm. water. How someone suffers when they die. Mm. Um, how they get confused and, you know, like, take all their clothes off and lay down in the sand or whatever it is. All these sort of really horrible things that happen to human beings when they die in this terrible way. Well, this book, book doesn't do that. It doesn't focus on the physical. That particular story could have done that, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't focus on the physical impact to the body it's the emotional and the relational, the relational. impact mm-hmm. of people, yeah. right? Like, yeah. that this person who is nameless and may never be found has a husband and has a mother and has sisters. Here's, right? here's what I want to say, because you said earlier, we get these italicized mini-stories um, that we discover actually are meaningful to the course of this narrative. And I think that's not quite the way I would put it, right? These stories are not at all meaningful for the characters in this novel, right? right? The characters in this novel don't even know about these stories, and that's part of the point of the italics. They, like, lift them up out of the text, and they're like, little do they know, right? Right. It's like a, over here, this is what's happening. And so what that means, and I think there is a tension in how this works. Like, it worked for me, but I can imagine it not working for every reader. Mm. Is that what it does is it says, they don't know about this, but you, the reader, you better know about this. Reader, there's this larger kind of like relationality that they don't even know about, but you better well understand. And in fact, all of those stories, right, because they're about the working class characters mainly, um, or about the migrant characters, or about working class and migrant characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
they trouble our like the way in which we want Nina and Orly and Daniel's stories to work out, right? Mm -hmm. um, they they upset our expectation for happy mm -hmm. endings. Yeah, and I actually that's a great because the one story that struck me and that actually surprised me in some ways was Mr. Dominguez's story because mm. I think I wasn't expecting that, right? Because mm -hmm. it says. You know, the only person that, uh, this is Orly, that he could think to email who might understand him and not go crazy is Mr. Dominguez, who's his teacher. And in my head, because this is the narrative I have of the relationship between like Susan's teacher, I was like, okay, he's going to write to Mr. Dominguez, and Mr. Dominguez is going to write back to him and like mm -hmm. give him some comfort because like, you know, they've like built up this relationship. He gave him a book. He gave him a book. Uh, but no, right? Basically, Mr. Dominguez is also here. At the moment, like he didn't have a work authorization because it, it hadn't been renewed and his work visa has expired. And I would say, I think that's like, mm -hmm. right? I think both maybe, and this is my own like biases as well, right? Because it's like somebody who's not working class, mm -hmm. somebody who's not um, mm -hmm. sort of what I think of, of sort of somebody who would come over without authorization. And so there's like all these ways in which, and that is somebody yep. who is in relationship with the main yeah. characters. And yeah. like actually also, I think you're thinking about relationships, right? It's like, these people kind of disappear and we don't necessarily know why, right? Mm -hmm. Just like Odilia's mm -hmm. family might never yeah. know. Like Orly will never know probably why Mr. Dominguez, his favorite Doesn't teacher, never wrote back. And like, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I found, like I think that was a story that really struck me because it was one that I just... And, and just, this is yeah. what I'm getting at, right? The novel itself is saying yeah. we, we should be in relationship with all of these people, yeah. right? We should know these stories. Yeah. And there's, so there's this larger structure, mm -hmm. right? There's the state. Yeah. There's the workings of the state and institutions that actually make it impossible for us to see over the boundaries of our own stories yeah. and to capture these italicized stories over mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, that in fact incentivize us to always to continue, right? To, yeah. to look to inside, yeah. to ignore. And yeah. to ignore the stories of other people is to make it easier to create a world in which the that is um, hostile to those people. Yeah. Yep. And I think, you yep. know, like, it's just easier, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. used to always have these moments where I'd be sitting in my car stuck on a highway or something like that, and I'd look and I'd think, everybody else in all these cars has a life and has stories and has, mm -hmm. like, they're sitting in their car centered on themselves, and, like, if there was a way to connect all of us, like, we would know that would be really hard, and then I would have to know all these people or something, like, I would have to <laughs> care about them, right? right. And um, that's that's hard, but... Yeah. If you if we did have a way to do that to recognize that the humanity and the experience of other people we wouldn't treat them like we do. I mean the way that it that we can get up every morning and go about our business without screaming and trying to do something is like, well, they're on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to happen anyway. Well, that's just the way the world works. Well, you know, all mm -hmm. these sort of rationalizations yeah. Yeah. about um, that that's the natural state of things that, you know, people are going to die, people are going to start, all these sorts of things. Which it isn't the natural state of things, you know, like, we made it that way. But then we don't do anything to change it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I like about this book is exactly what you said. That the characters don't know these stories, but these stories are in their lives nonetheless. Right. Right, yeah. 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 And I thought, I thought where are you going to go with that highway story is I was actually thinking about, right, a lot of the times, at least on Hiawatha, like, there are people at the stop signs asking for money or asking mm. for, right? And I yep. feel like it's taken me, 
and it still sometimes comes up, right? It's taken me a long time to like work through my own sense of right. like deservedness and undeservedness, right? That's sort of like I'm in a car in my Honda Fit because I've worked hard and I've like done all right. these things, right. right? And sort of kind of thinking about, right? So even if I've like worked through that, like, you know, sometimes I do roll down my window and, and give them money, but like sometimes I don't, right? Because it's like inconvenient. It's like I'm just busy and I need to get on my way and right. get to my gym or whatever, right? So I think it's just like. And what's the way to do if you don't look? Then yeah, not there. Yeah, and literally like not looking, yeah. right? And I just think of that like that happens all the time, right? Because it's like sometimes it's like I don't know what to do. We we right? yeah, and but we all do these things, yeah. right? Yeah. We all do these things. They're like coping mechanisms yeah. to, you know, keep us sane and to keep us moving from day to day. But we could yeah. we could do more to recognize the experiences of other people and and to. Um, to recognize that everybody's not where they are because of something they did, right? right? Um, right. There are other forces at play here, you know. So I wanted to um, point towards the ending and like the language that is used because I think um, again well, I, I think a non-Spanish speaker I hope might you're going where I think you're going. Yeah. miss <laughs> some of. We don't yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Um, so on page 251, right, Nina, um, Daniel has left, and, um, and you know, I think Orly is going to bed, and so Nina feels her way to the kitchen without turning on any lights. Um, she knows it won't help her see whoever it is moving in the shadows who doesn't want to be seen, because she's just heard a thump. Quien es, she says, quien es? But then a moment later, without thinking what she's saying, it changes to... Quién eres, mm -hmm. and it's this really important moment, mm -hmm. right? The quién es is a kind of it's a formal kind of like who is it, mm -hmm. um, but quién eres means who are, are you, you? Mm -hmm. um, and so even like I mean it turns out to be a cat, mm -hmm. but her question is an openness to finding stories that are not hers. Mm -hmm. But also, she says she realizes this is the first time she's ever asked herself that question. Mm -hmm. So both and right, exactly so like, right. about herself and about others, and so yeah. Well, and I mean, it strikes me like what you said about you know about being on this the street and on the road and like that we we um, we delude ourselves about our own stories, right? Or we tell mm -hmm. ourselves stories that aren't really true, you know, as much as we. Um, just don't listen to the stories of other people or don't seek them out, right? So that question, who are you, directed outward and inward, is super powerful mm -hmm. in terms of the relationships that it could allow to occur, right? Because, like, the, the, the most difficult thing about having a relationship with somebody is to be honest in it, mm -hmm. right? And to be vulnerable in it. Like, that's super, super hard. Right. I mean, I think maybe one of the things the novel is saying, and I totally agree with you, Todd, is... Like, you cannot actually know who you are, be honest with yourself about who you are, unless you're inviting other people into relationship. Mm -hmm. Unless you're saying, quien eres, instead of quien es. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I find really interesting, because the end of the chapter before that one, right? And this is like, um, early at the sleepover, and it, that chapter ends with, then early realizes how still, how he still knows so little about the boy next to him. Like opening an album or looking at a framed photo, these images want, make us want to believe we know everything there is about a person, a stranger, even someone in our family, our mother, our father, 244. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course we never do. Because I, so I also think it's like kind of interesting about 
Because I don't know, like, right? I mean, I think one of my worries is that this idea that, and we've talked about this before, right? This idea that you have to, like, know somebody to, like, respect their humanity and dignity, right? And that we don't necessarily need to know anybody. We need to know that they're human and that should be enough, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, but, but that's why it ends with the quien eres, not with an answer. I mean, it's a cat mm-hmm. for one thing. <laughs> but the important thing is that she's shifted the question mm-hmm. and not that she actually gets an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, Hmm. But but uh, you bring up this whole other set of issues, which I found fascinating in that chapter, which is about, you know, Orly is recognizing that his own family has kind of generated a set of photographs of images of itself that he's had to, like, they were there and he had to kind of excavate under them because mm-hmm. they were untrue, mm-hmm. right? And I think, so he's, he's, right, like, Nina is at this stage where she's, you know, she's older. She knew the images were untrue, right? Mm. Orly's at the stage where he's like, oh, wait. Mm. So self-presentation or, like, meeting someone, like, that's actually, it's a process, mm. right? There's not, like, this single thing that happens, you know, like, you give someone your photo and you're like, that's who I am. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. That's, that's how I might kind mm. of, like, work okay. through the okay. difference. but. I think I don't have any kind of completely formed thoughts because so many thoughts are kind of spinning around. But um, what I've been thinking about is that I don't know if it's a quote or just something that people say that, you know, in relationship, you know, is where you learn more about yourself. Right. And so being in relationship with someone is not kind of just about that person, but it also reveals to you who you are. And so the fact that when Orly is having a sleepover with Daniel, he realizes, oh, I don't know anything about Daniel, but Mm -hmm. Orly has come to so many realizations about himself, Mm -hmm. right? And then at the end, um, Nina and her album book, you know, she doesn't know, she still doesn't know a lot, even about herself, but those pages are blank. And she's open, Mm -hmm. she's open to writing a new story, right? Mm -hmm. And she wants to keep that number who knows what she's going to do with it? Maybe it's just to spark a memory, or maybe she'll call it again sometime in the future. We don't know, mm-hmm. but those pages are blank, and she can fill them with you know new stories, new memories, new relationships, um, and new insights about herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love I love that sort of potentiality and positivity of her story. You know, I think you know both herself and Orly. And Daniel, I mean, like, Daniel, um, we don't, I mean, I think it's important that you guys point out, we don't know what happens to Daniel. Right. Mm -hmm. And if those stories in italics tell us anything, it's Mm. that it's not a guarantee. Right. That even if he finds, gets to his father, that once he's with his father, things are going to be okay. Because they're always going to be hunted, surveilled, whatever. Right. Right. You're running when you don't have, you know, the protection of citizenship, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I think when it comes to Orly and Nina, there's like this new potentiality in their lives mm-hmm. because they have sort of, um, they've done a little work of self, like um, self-exploration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Orly as a child, you know, like we, we sort of think like kids don't know anything and blah, but the kid like, really thoughtful and yeah. he's um and he he does some boneheaded things but he does boneheaded <laughs> things because the stuff people are telling him doesn't make any sense right. no, he's a right. great character yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i yeah. think he is you know and yeah. i really like him and, and i and i really like nina as well and i you know i just sort of 
really felt the way that her life was, was, um, you know, kind of, you know, conscripted in all these sort of, is that the right word? I yeah. don't know if that's the right word. Constri- constricted. Constricted, I think, is, yeah, is a conscripted better word. Conscripted into rules. Yeah, I mean, like, she, so many ways. I'm going to stop and let you speak. And maybe okay. this will be our last yeah, thought. Yeah, I think so this might be our up. last mm-hmm. thought, but maybe I'll generate more thoughts. Who knows? So I wanted to revisit this idea of the italics and the way that they kind of like both um, show us that there are n- not necessarily happy endings. Um, but And usually they're not people that we know, right, from mm-hmm. the novel. But actually the last italics I just went back is Daniel's mm-hmm. oh, yeah. um, on page 232, 233. And what's fascinating about that one, when I reminded myself of it, is that, um, you know, he had watched the news of, um, you know, what happened after his group was pursued by the police and by immigration. And um, they showed a house where La Migra had found 40 people being hidden in a garage. And he says about, like, this morning he kept turning between Univision and Telemundo to see what happened next, mm. if they were locked up or sent back to their home mm, countries, mm, but mm. there was no mention of it, as if it didn't happen, or mm. it happens so often that it isn't worth mentioning more than once and then moving on to the next story. Mm. And I think that's, like, a really important um, kind of parallel that the novel asks us to push back against, mm-hmm. right? Like the italics, they basically are these stories that we get this mention once of a person and we never hear more. Mm. Um, and if there's anything that the current situation requires of us, I mean, the one thing we can do as kind of consumer citizens is to push back against the limited amount of information we're given, mm. um, push back against the fact that we get one part of the story but not the next part of the story. Um, push back at the fact that um, the, the sensationalism of the way we're told the story becomes the story itself, mm. right? Instead of the people, the people mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. and what, what we can do, mm. right, mm-hmm. for them. Yeah, and maybe uh, in our sort of uh, Facebook links, we can also link to some organizations that you can support or places where you can get more information about what is happening right now. I think that's a lovely idea. Uh, so we'll do that. Uh, but in the interest of time... Okay, so my, of, my one last oh my thought. Goodness. Sorry. Yeah. No, because <laughs> I, I, interest I, of time? Who's coming? <laughs> This is well, our show. Our well, time. What is, is what is time anyway? I said, what is time but another rule or regulation? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Who cares if nobody listens past 55? <laughs> the, the other thing I wanted to say, just because I think this is like such a lovely, like smart novel. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the kind of genres that is just classic in Latinx literature mm-hmm. is kind of a coming of age novel, right? Like, and I think it makes sense, right? It's about what does it mean to be Latinx, right? Or Chicano or Mexican American, depending on how that character is placed in the world. And that was the story Orly was supposed to get, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Eduardo, his father, is very tied to his roots in really interesting ways that probably mirror mine, right? Like privileged and middle class, but like very like determined to kind of like still be like connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and his mother clearly wasn't in other ways. And so with the mother dead, Eduardo sends Orly to live with Nina because he thinks he's going to learn how to be Mexican American mm-hmm. and a man, and a man. right? Yeah. Um, and maybe he does all that, but it is so much more than what his father imagined this coming-of-age story would be. 
Um, and I think like, in that, it asks us to think about like how impoverished are some of our coming-of-age stories? Mm. Shouldn't our coming-of-age stories recognize that becoming politicized, right? Um, recognizing you know, the arbitrariness of rules mm -hmm. and of the state. Mm -hmm. well, Shouldn't be that fair, be that's what Star did and Hate You Give, and we kind of like, I'll say the same thing. Like, ah, I'll the same thing. How dare she, you know, <laughs> not have this politicized identity already. This is much better. <laughs> okay, this is much better. <laughs> okay, that was my last word. Okay. Um, so we're going to go around and maybe say a little bit about what we've been reading. And actually, I could start because actually it's super related to all the stuff in this novel because I just finished reading Sandra Cisneros novel Caramelo mm -hmm. and that's oh, it yeah so finally I know it's been out for a while um but it basically narrates kind of this like sprawling multi-generational story of one family in Mexico in the U.S. and the parts of the U.S. that were Mexico um and I thought it was like a really interesting book I happened to just pick up randomly to read kind of before this book and kind of thinking about borders and thinking about right the whole thing about like we didn't cross the border the border crossed us and so kind of thinking about belonging in all these beautiful ways, but also because it's also a coming-of-age story Absolutely. in this like, really complicated way. Um, but also, I would like to give a shout-out to my buddy, our buddy, Dr. Olga Herrera, and her um, story, where, uh, her essay, sorry, where she talks about the book, and it's um, it's called The Street of Uzo, I think that's how you say it, Street of Uzo, Arak, and Tequila, Recalling the Marvelous Strangeness of Chicago's Near West Side with Carlos Cortez, Sandra Cisneros, and Daniel Martinez. So check that out. It's in um, Melos, is that how you say that? Melos. Melos, okay. Mm -hmm. Not my feelings. Mellos <laughs> Volume yeah. 2, Spring 2017. So check it out. Coolio. I am reading Terrence Hayes' um, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. It's like a brilliant set of poems. I am, yeah, I'm just dipping in and dipping out and going, wow. It's, just a, it's, a, it's on my bathroom. <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to be teaching it. Which is where I do my it. dipping in and dipping out. In. I'm, I'm teaching it in the fall, but for our critical methods. <laughs> I'm sorry methods. for that <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I'm reclaiming my time. <laughs> Please do. Um, so I'm teaching it in the fall for our critical methods slash theory class um, in English. And so I'm excited about what the students... Uh, right, because one thing that's wonderful about is about the book as a whole is there's like a coherence, but also like all the poems are doing different things. And so I think they'll find a lot to work with and think through. Um, but I also wanted to give a shout out, sorry, yeah. to my dear friend and colleague Ernesto Martinez's um, movie, La Serenata, which you can find online and you can vote for because it's up for oh. an Im Imagen Award. And um, we can put the link on, on Although the the link to the oh, um, to the contest might be done with by the time we get the post up, but the video will still be there, and it's just this beautiful story of a young Mexican American boy. He's like eleven or twelve, and he's grown up learning that la serenata is this really important way to demonstrate love in our community, um, and he uh, you know he tells his parents he's finally met someone he loves, and it's a boy. Mm. And so they go through the whole, like the parents' kind of reaction and their um, their willingness to kind of like do this journey with him, which is to find where can we find music that's for a boy who loves another boy. Mm -hmm. At one point, the dad says to him, "Music exists where love exists," mm -hmm. which I think is just the right lesson for hmm. for these days. Yay. Yeah, totally. Shout outs to friends. <laughs> so, Crystal. 
I'm not reading or watching or listening to anything deep these days. I basically um, heard that CBS is releasing a new TV show about Jean-Luc Picard. Yes! Let's watch it together. What'd you say? Let's watch it together. Right. And it's not, I don't think it's premiering to 2020 early. I've been, um, I've been watching Star Trek The Next Generation on Hulu because they have all of the seasons. So that's what I've been watching. And then I'm sure you all have seen Lizzo's NPR Tiny concert um, that came out a couple days ago. So that's so good. yeah, so good. So that's what I've been doing. Also, Star Trek is totally deep. So let's say, you know, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Uh, I'm reading two books right now. One is um, Peggy Ornstein's book, um, Girls and Sex. Oh, I saw that in your bathroom. Yes. <laughs> All the books. Are, that's just where they stay during the daytime. Just go in there and pick one out. This is too much information. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that book is sort of, is really blowing my mind, and I think um, it's a book that uh, everyone needs to read, not just every girl, but every every boy. And so for me, it's it's been kind of mind-blowing to read it. Um, and I'm also reading another. I just started reading this one. Um, it's not out yet. Cause I, I was, I was, uh, I was hanging out. No, wasn't it? I was with uh, uh, Kalia Yang um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, she uh, gave me a a copy of the of her book that she edited with uh, Shannon Gibney. Mm -hmm. It's called "What God Is Honored Here," which is a collection. I don't know of any. I don't know if I mentioned this last time or not, but anyway, if I, I don't know of any book like this ever. It's a collection of pieces about. the loss of children um, by women of color and indigenous women. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've only read like the first two pieces in it. And you talk about weeping, like I didn't weep, but like I could have wept. I mean, they're just yeah. unbelievably um, moving pieces and just, I, I, I don't know. It's just like nothing I've ever read before. So it should be coming out soon. I don't know the exact date, but it'll be out soon. And please, please check it out. It's a pretty amazing book. So, cool. so speaking of books, our next book is going to be Jean Yang's American Born Chinese, which is going to be our first graphic novel. Yay. So that should be cool. And we want to give a shout out to Mikkel Huntley, who is Todd's best friend's daughter right. and a student of Missouri State. And basically, she requested that we do this book. So it's also our first request. Yay! Yeah, so. see, that just proves you could make a request to us and maybe we'll listen to Exa- you. Exactly. Maybe yeah. we'll listen If you to happen you. to be my best friend's, one of my best friend's kids, we'll, we'll probably definitely listen, definitely to, you. listen exactly. to you. Exactly. Yeah. And we actually have also decided the book we're going to do after that. So we're going to do Colson Whitehead's new novel, The Nickel Boys, because we love Colson Whitehead and we want to read everything he's written. So next up, Jean Yang's American Born Chinese, and after that, Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys. All right. I think that's that. We're done. Bye. 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 Bye, Crystal. Bye, Crystal. Bye, everyone. Facebook, Twitter, all the things. All right. Spotify, blah, blah. And we out. You've been listening to another brand new episode of The Drip recorded at my house in St. Paul, Minnesota. It was a beautiful day. We had the windows and doors open, which is why you heard all the cars and trucks driving by outside. The Drip is written, produced, and directed by the All Spoilers Collective, which is Anita, Adriana, Crystal, and me. Our mascot is Bash the Dog, and our music is by the Lord Jordan X. 
We'll be back at the end of August with a brand new episode on Gene Yang's graphic novel, American Born Chinese. And I would just like to make one point. This is not so weird. Keep books in your bathroom. A lot of people do it. It's perfectly normal. What? All right. See you next time. You know, how, you know how important it is that we end yeah, on right. time. <laughs> Super important. Because we're all so good at listening to each other. I want that outtake at the end <laughs> of the show. <laughs>